Um, our reading is Revelation 19 and verse 1 to 10. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries. He has avenged her on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has, been, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clear, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't, do, don't do that. I am a fellow with you and with the brothers, your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And we're looking at 21, chapter 21, again verse 1. This is 1 to 6. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, fully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. So it's great to have Stephen with us, Angeli. Um, I'm just going to pray for him before he comes to bring God's word to us. Father, we do thank you that we are free to meet um, and be together as Christians. 
We thank you that we can listen to your word and we thank you for gifted people who can bring your word to us. And we thank you for Stephen and we just pray, Lord, that you would give us um, open hearts and open ears to what he has to say. Amen. Thank you, Sally. And just to say what a privilege it is, uh, now we live in the back of beyond. Um, we nevertheless get back to Boston Spa often, and it's always a joy just to be with you in worship. And it's the icing on the cake to have the opportunity every now and then to share God's word. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. So somebody said Christmas is not only a commemoration, it is a prophecy. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus is coming again. And even as we celebrate his first coming, we anticipate his second. During this season that we call Advent, we remember the one and we look forward to the other. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will come a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He is going to complete what he has started. And so this brings us to the final doctrine in this uh, series you've been having, and technically it's called eschatology. In the early 1980s, when I was pastor of a church in Lancaster, I asked a friend to come and do some Bible teaching for about three or four days. And on the last night, he said to the church, if I come again, I might do something with you next time on eschatology. And as he was leaving, one of our ladies said to him, thank you for coming, and we look forward to, was it eschatology? Something like that. Well, it's eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last, and it's the doctrine of the last things, essentially. Now, when I went to Bible college at the age of 18, I pretty much thought I understood the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. You see, I'd read... Hal Lindsay's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. It was something of a Christian blockbuster at the time, perhaps rather sensationalist, but it made a deep impression on my teenage mind. And to some degree, I thought I knew how it was going to happen, where it was going to happen, and even when it was going to happen, not the day or the hour, because Jesus said no one can know that. But I remember thinking, if this book is right, I may not get out of my 20s before Jesus comes again. And I found that quite exciting, as indeed we should. And then I went to Bible college, or theological cemetery, as somebody put it. Uh, now, my college, I'm thankful to God for it. It was a, it was a good college. Uh, but I learned when I went there that, um, well, I, I discovered it wasn't that simple. I found out that Hal Lindsay came from a particular line of thought called futurism, and that even within that school of thought, there were divergent opinions. I also found out that there were other major interpretations going by different names, which need not detain us today. So I have to admit that I had the wind knocked out of my sails. I fairly quickly felt a little disillusioned, and I became somewhat jaded by it, I'm sad to say, mixed up, confused. What can we know? 
Well, fast forward a few decades, and a man called Jack Hayford came to speak at the Elim Conference. He was pastor of a mega church in uh, Los Angeles, very godly, wise man. And he said something that I'd been thinking for a long time, but I'd never articulated. It was amazing, because I'd been thinking this. He said, you know all these charts that people have? Because back in the 1970s, you'd have a lot of prophetic teachers, and they'd have huge charts and a pointer. Well, this is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. He said, let me tell you something about all those charts. They're all wrong to some degree. He said the Pharisees, the religious leaders, thought they understood prophecy. They had the prophetic scheme, you know, tight, and the Messiah came, and they missed him. And then he said, Jesus and me have got an agreement. When he comes, I go. And my heart said, Amen. The truth is, in spite of differing lines of interpretation, all Orthodox Christians agree on certain fundamental details regarding end times. We can all agree that Jesus will come back someday, and that there will be a judgment. And it's those two themes that I've been asked to speak about today, arising out of the two passages we read earlier. So we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of what we can expect heaven to be like from those verses. And by the way, I'm using heaven as shorthand for the whole future God has planned for his people. Not, don't think somewhere up there above the clouds, because you'll see that it includes a whole new universe. So I'm using heaven as shorthand, but what can we expect heaven to be like? First of all, to be crowded. 19 verse 1, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude. Verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. One translation speaks of a huge crowd, a great crowd. And isn't this an encouragement in our mission? Because here in the Western world, truth be told, we are witnessing significant decline in many parts of the church. We're told if current trends continue, certain major denominations may not be here in 10, 20, 30 years. And it feels like the church is increasingly being pushed to the margins, which, by the way, is where the church has always flourished the most. Uh, but at times, it can be discouraging. And we can maybe feel like we're in our small corner. But we must not lose sight of the big picture that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, cannot. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. So we expect heaven to be crowded. Secondly, expect heaven to be celebratory. Don't just leave it for the, the sports field. I mean, this is noisily celebratory. I know there was silence in heaven for half an hour, but that's not in our passage. And there's a place for silence. But did you notice the volume is turned high in those readings Andrew brought? And why not? There's a lot to celebrate. Hallelujah, that word hallelujah resounds through the passage might surprise you to know this is the only chapter in the New Testament where this great Bible word is found. It just means praise the Lord. And the celebration focuses in particular on God's salvation and judgment. Look at verses 1 to 3. 
After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever. First of all, celebrate salvation. Uh, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And we all say amen to that. Salvation is God's work by his power for his glory. When anyone is converted, it is a sheer miracle. It's darkness to light. It's the power of Satan to God. It's blind eyes being opened. It's deaf ears being unstopped. It is a resurrection from the dead. It's remarkable. But the celebration is also because of God's judgment. Tom Wright says the glossy, glitzy world of Babylon has been overthrown. Revelation 17 and 18 are all about the downfall of Babylon, which really is this world's system, also referred to as the prostitute. And that's the meaning of the smoke going up forever and ever. In other words, Babylon will not make a comeback. It's interesting, Tom Wright describes Babylon as a futile parody of the real thing, a human attempt to get by sheer greed what God proposed to give by sheer grace. I know at times, you know, we, well, probably every day we are, we are affected by the world, the world system, by worldliness. But when we can look at it objectively, don't you just get tired of it and what it does to people? And one day we are going to shout over the downfall of Babylon. Expect heaven to be worshipful, to be God-centred, let me read again verses 4 to 7. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped, worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Of course, in verse 10, you've got John worshipping the angel and the angel saying, don't do that. Worship God. Chapter 21, verse 3 says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's going to be God-obsessed, God-dominated, God-filled. And I guess in the church now, that's, that's what we should be moving towards, that, that absolute God-centeredness. It's all about him. And I think the God-centeredness of this passage is a rebuke to the man-centeredness of much of the contemporary church with its personality cults and its celebrity culture. Of course, there's nothing new about that. It was happening in Corinth in the first century where people were saying, well, I prefer Paul, I prefer Peter, no, I prefer Apollos. And Paul says, what after all is Paul? What after all is Apollos? 
Only servants through whom you came to believe, as God assigned to each his task. One sows, another reaps, but God gives the growth. And he goes on to say, So neither he who sows nor he who reaps is anything but only God, only God, who gives the growth. Expect heaven to be full of God. Expect heaven to be clean, verse 7b and 8. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Just notice the, the fine balance here. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The truth is that holiness is our work in the sense that we have to pursue it. But its actual achievement is always God's gift. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And you think of that fine balance, for example, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. We work out what God works in. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right, I'm picking up the pace. We're going very quickly now. Uh, just pointers. Expect heaven to be beautiful. I mean, we love beauty, don't we? Whose heart is not moved by seeing a beautiful scene? If I said to you, what's the most beautiful place in the world you've seen, we'd have different answers. Expect heaven to be infinitely more beautiful than anything like that. All the beauty of the earth will be surpassed infinitely. Revelation 21.2 is my reference. As a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, expect heaven to be happy. Just like church, only better, a lot, lot better than that. Look at that word blessed in chapter 19, verse 9. Then the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed. And also that lovely verse, which we often quote at funerals quite understandably, and it was reflected in our song, 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Expect heaven to be new. 21 verse 5, he's making all things new. But if I could just spend a couple of minutes on, on this last one. Expect heaven to be separate. If you look in chapter 21, beginning at, at verse 6, you've got both promise and warning. So God says to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death. We can expect a great crowd in heaven, but that does not mean that every person who has ever lived will be there regardless. 
I cannot see that the Bible teaches universalism. The invitation is broad, it's wide. Whosoever will may come, Jesus says. But you know, I know, not everyone will come. Therefore, not everyone will go to God's heaven. We might wish universalism were true. I just can't see it in the Bible. I remember Jim Packer saying, Adam and Eve, before ever God removed them from the garden, they hid from him. And he said, ultimately, all that God does in judgment is to underline the choices we ourselves have made. The author, Dorothy L. Sayers, said, the essence of hell is the truth discovered too late. And two things I believe we can be clear about the second coming. One is he's coming, he's coming back. And the second is that there is going to be a day of judgment. It's in God's hands, not ours, but it's coming. And if there isn't going to be a day of judgment, why bother with evangelism? What is the point? Well, C.S. Lewis, the Oxford and Cambridge Don, who became a Christian, called himself the most reluctant convert in all England, he said, if we find ourselves, find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You may have heard people talk about thin spaces or thin places. There are parts of the planet where some people would say they're thin places where the veil between this world and the eternal world is thin. My own opinion is that there are some places maybe that feel thinner than others, but I believe the whole world, the whole universe, is a thin place. I remember once standing at the grave of a Christian who had died, and again with reference to C.S. Lewis, I thought, this is like the doorway into Narnia. The other side of it, there is life, and there is beauty, and there is color, and all I can see is the wardrobe door. And as I was preparing this today, I was thinking, the word real was very much on my mind. How real is this to us? The creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But do I? That's my question, do I? And if I do, the New Testament tells me it will affect the way I live from day to day. It will affect my work life. It will affect my marriage, my parenting. It will affect the whole of life, single or married. It will affect very practical things. In 2 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You're not here forever. The world's not here forever, so what kind of people ought we to be? I guess we could leave that question hanging in midair, but Peter answers it. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, 
Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's what somebody called living in the future tense. And Peter says, if you are looking forward to God's tomorrow, it will show itself in your today. Again, C.S. Lewis said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So eschatology might sound esoteric and highfalutin, but it's highly practical in its implications. And I think every New Testament passage that refers to the second coming of Jesus applies it in very nitty-gritty terms to here and now. It just so happened that this last week I spent some time with a friend. He doesn't know I'm preaching here today. He doesn't know the subject I've been given. But uh, because of certain things he's thinking through, he reminded me that Jesus has an answer for all those who tend to be speculative and sensational in their approach to the, the second coming. In Acts 1, 6-8, the disciples said to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Charts. While we waste interminable hours debating things, we will not be able to resolve the church's mission languishes. And Jesus says, in effect, you want to be ready for the coming. Don't date set. Get on with the job. And I'm giving you the power to do it. Well, I was just thinking this through. Only God is eternal. Okay? Only God had no beginning, has no end. You and I came into existence not that long ago. I mean, for some of us, it was a lot longer ago than others, but not really in terms of eternity. So 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago is when we came into existence. Our longest, our best, our fullest life is still ahead of us. And for each one of us here today, even the youngest, but especially for some of us who are older, in a relatively short time, we who know and love Jesus, we will be with him forever. And Paul says in Philippians 2, it will be gain. And he also says it will be better by far. But I wonder, do we think of it as often as we should? Are we perhaps superstitiously fearful that if we allow our minds to go there, we might somehow bring it on? Is the love of this world too much in our hearts? Now, there's a balance here because God has richly given us all things to enjoy. God's good gifts are to be enjoyed. I believe life given by God is to be enjoyed, and it's a very precious thing. But there's a kind of earthboundness that is not a healthy thing. Just to go back to uh, Phil's image last week of the church of Cinderella, and Cinderella gets to go to the ball, and that's great good news. It reminded me of a book I read some years ago by Michael Griffiths about the church, and he called it 
Cinderella with amnesia. And perhaps one of the things that Cinderella tends to forget is, its, is her glorious hope, her radiant future. I want to say as I finish, this is the church's great hope. It's meant to be a source of profound joy and deep peace and also a spur to live holy lives and seek first God's kingdom as we remember we are accountable to him for what we do with the one life we have. As Christians, we will not be judged for our sins. Praise God, we are justified. But we will be judged for our service. There will be rewards. There could even be loss, the Bible indicates. But most of all, this is for our our encouragement. I, um, I've got to know a little, a pastor in America called Lee Eklov. I've been reading him for years, and he's a great guy. He's a retired pastor. He's 72 now. And um, in one of his recent pieces, he writes little pieces for pastors to encourage them. So he's a 72-year-old retired pastor in church many Sundays, although he also is still preaching. And he said, recently, when our pastor preached from John 14, on Jesus' promise of a place prepared for us, Jesus himself reassured me deeply. And that's my heart for you today. That's, that's my longing. That each one of you will know the deep assurance that it's well with your soul, that you're right with God because you're trusting in Jesus and you know that there is a place prepared for you. Shall we pray? Lord, as we prepare again to celebrate your first coming with all the wonder of it, we thank you that the Bible reminds us that you will come again. You will come in power and great glory. We thank you there's a whole new world coming, a whole new universe. We can hardly imagine what it's going to be like. We thank you that those of us who know you and trust you by grace have a place in it. And we pray that our daily lives right now will reflect that hope in the way we live, in our longings, in our pursuits, in our seeking first after your kingdom. Pray you'll take away from us all fear and just fill us with radiant peace and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.